Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Podcast. This is season seven, episode 12. This is our last episode in this season and today I will be joined by Cassie Hilditch. But before we finish off this season, we do have a sponsor. We have a sponsor from Element or LMNT, which it will appear on the product. So what is Element? Well, this is a, a partnership that we have formed with Rob Wolf. You may remember or know Rob Wolf from being on the Learning to Die podcast and our podcast I host with Kieran O'Regan and he's been on the Joe Rogan podcast at least twice, maybe three or four times even, but twice that I know of. So this is a, a great drink. It's an electro, electrolyte drink which uh, aims to basically eliminate any of your deficiencies or imbalances with electrolytes that can cause symptoms such as headaches, cramps, fatigue and weakness. Uh, it's very good if you're fasting on a low carb diet, if you're an athlete as well, or you got any other sort of health conditions. I really like it in terms of the amount of exercise I do. And as I get older, it's uh, very, very helpful. So mainly what it is, is an electrolyte drink without all the sugar and the colorings to go with it. It's a powder form. You just mix it with some water and you skull it. It's very nice. It comes in lots of different flavors, which you can check out on the link in the show notes. If you click on, click on that link in the show notes, it will bring you to a Sleep for Performance specific page where you can get a, a free gift of your first order. And if you're not entirely satisfied, Rob will give you your money back. Um, this is an excellent product. Uh, it contains potassium, sodium and magnesium. So not just good for daytime activity, but will also uh, enable good sleep as well. As we know, magnesium is good for sleep overnight. Now, this product is widely used with the U.S. Olympians. It's used in the NFL, the NBA, NHL. It's used with special forces, tech leaders, and everyday health as well, people like myself. So if you would like to try LMNT or Element, please go to the link in the show notes and click on it to get your free gift now. All right, welcome back to Sleep for Performance podcast. It's nice and cold here in Western Australia at the moment, hence why I'm rugged up and it's early in the morning. It's a very cold 16 degrees Celsius, which is uh, getting quite soft here, Cassie. That's the way it goes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, today, well. today I'm joined by uh, Dr. Cassie Hilditch. Uh, so Cassie, um, where about you located today? So I'm joining you from my house in San Francisco in California, um, where it is sunny, but um, also kind of chilly. It never really gets very hot here. so managed to avoid the fires so far that are brewing nearby. They got fires up there, have you, in California at this moment? Okay. Yeah, it's um, start of the summer, so much like Australia, it's just always fire season here. And so, Cassie, you're obviously not from the US originally. Where are you from? Uh, yes, I'm originally from Adelaide, um, and I've lived in London for a little bit, but I've uh, I've been in the States for about six years now and four years on the West Coast here in California. Is that why you got that strange accent though? Yeah, <laughs> I think it, I think some of my words give me away either way. So <laughs> in, yeah, in America, they think I have an Australian accent and in Australia, they think I have an American accent. So somewhere, yeah, somewhere in the Pacific. <laughs> it's very odd. I actually think that my brother lives in Vancouver and um, he's got a crazy kind of Canadian American type accent going on. But then when he hangs around me for a few days, he starts getting a real strong Irish accent. I do think that for some reason, the American accent comes through really quickly with people. I've seen a number of Australians, English and Irish go to the States or Canada 
and really quickly mm-hmm. they they come with a they come back with an American accent. Unfortunately, I haven't done the same in Australia. Uh, yeah, despite, I was despite, say, I despite, despite my efforts, my it ain't coming true. <laughs> um, so a, a strong C, yeah, yeah. <laughs> C plus maybe. <laughs> we don't use the C word here. Um, yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah. So you're from you're from Adelaide originally. So you got a few. Tw- Actually, I was in Adelaide last week. Yeah, I was there for a oh, few nice. days. I, I was talking to some of your old, uh, probably uh, comrades in arms, Siobhan Banks. Yes, yeah, she was my uh, supervisor for my PhD, yep. Yeah, uh, who was my PhD examiner. (laughs) Oh, there you go, yep. (laughs) The the scientific family tree. So yeah, I was in Adelaide for a while, staying down in, um, I think it was the Hilton, is it Victoria Avenue or something like that? But anyway, in Adelaide, it was quite uh, cold. It was Victoria it was Square, something. Victoria Square, yeah. something like that. It was mm. it was quite it was quite cold. I can tell you, it was um, I think maximum of like eleven degrees, which is quite cold for Adelaide. Yeah, and if you're mm. you're in Perth, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's usually always warmer there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but like I said, what I've been told, yeah, yeah, 16, <laughs> sixteen feels cold. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so Cassie, um, tell us about. Um, Growing up in Adelaide, did you always want to be a scientist, or uh, what was your what was your what was your goal or ambition? Gosh, I think um, I think my my first sort of career ambition was to be a firefighter that lived on a farm. Um, so I'm not sure I've I've strayed pretty far from from those uh, initial goals, but um, I actually wanted to be a journalist. Um, sort of all through high school. And that's why I sort of chose just a whole range of subjects in high school. And I applied to get into journalism at uni mm-hmm. and I got in and my second choice was um, was just a bachelor of science. And I'd done, taken biology in year 12 and just loved it. And I just, at when I got the offer letter for journalism, I was like, I think I'm gonna do science. <laughs> and that's kind of where the, the pivot point was. And um, I'm always tempted to go into maybe sort of science communication or sort of uh, science journalism, maybe sort of steer back towards that um, journalism passion. But yeah. I don't I think you, I, I don't think you do very well in scientific communication because you have to have um, an Instagram uh, account where you're half naked. You have to be not in the field of science. And you have to be quite opinionated in one direction or the other to be a scientific communicator these days for a, for a newspaper. Right. Well, I do have uh, an Instagram account for an opossum because I uh, volunteer at a wildlife rescue center. So I'm a foster parent for a, a blind opossum that has uh, more followers than I ever will. So, <laughs> Like people with their, uh, with their um, animals, like dogs, have more followers than they do. Like 20,000 followers from people with dogs. Yeah. So you end up doing uh, science. Did you do that at UniSA as well? Uh, I actually did my undergrad at Adelaide Uni. um, And then I did my, yeah, I did my honours at the Adelaide Institute for Sleep Health um, with uh, Doug McAvoy and Pete Catcherside. And um, I'd I'd actually been, so if if the next question is where, how did I get into sleep? Um, My sort of third year placement for physiology, you get sort of put in a lab somewhere and we got sent out to the far flung corners of Door Park at Aish. Um, and that's my was my first intro into sleep research. And then I ended up doing my honors there because I really liked the lab and the research they were doing. Um, 
but uh, yeah, kind of just, it was, again, sleep wasn't something that I always wanted to do or had a particular interest in, but once introduced to it, I sort of fell in love with it. Yeah. And I've said this to nearly every podcast guest um, on every episode, like, you know, nobody sits there chewing a pencil, looking out the window going, someday I'm going to be a sleep scientist and get out of here. You know, <laughs> it's just, everybody falls into it from weird and wonderful backgrounds from exercise physiology to psychology to science to you know through a workplace through health and safety through sports mm -hmm. there's so many different you know routes of entry to the sleep science world which which is great because it creates lots of cross-pollination different ideas and different applications different knowledge and then break down to like sort of sleep general sleep science sleep disorders chronobiology chronic nutrition all these other fields we see emerging now i think it's absolutely fantastic right. I think it makes sense. I mean, we all do it, right? And it should yeah. be roughly a third of our lives. So it makes sense that sort of um, it, as sleep touches everything, then there's, you know, everyone can be involved in studying sleep. So yeah, yeah I really like that sort of cross-disciplinary uh, research um, area Definitely. that we can work in. And now, Cassie, I could be wrong. Did you did you take a break after your honours and take a few years working before you did a PhD or did you go straight into a PhD? Yeah, so I um, so I took a break, break between undergrad and honours, just, you know, the, yeah. the classic Aussie thing of backpacking Europe <laughs> for a year. And then, uh, and then yeah, between honours and uh, my PhD, I moved to London for five years and I worked as a fatigue risk management um, consultant in a small company that sort of, um, helped, uh, you know, sort of safety critical industries with their fatigue, fatigue management programs. Um, so that was, yeah, had a lot of fun there. Got to get involved in a lot of awesome projects around the world. Yeah, that, that's what I thought. That was with Clockwork, was that? With, um, yeah, Clockwork Research. With Alex. Mm -hmm. Alex. Yeah, Alex Holmes. Alex Holmes, yeah. yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and at the time, Paul Jackson <laughs> as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I, I did think that, yeah. And then I thought maybe I'm imagining that. Yeah. Because... As you get older yeah. and more tired, you start imagining things. <laughs> yeah. Also, one of those weird things where I didn't actually know Alex previously from Adelaide. It just turned out that she was also from Adelaide and then we met in London. So, yeah, Adelaide's quite small the, world um, things. Adelaide's quite the center for sleep work, isn't it? It's crazy. Like so many people. Yeah, come it's crazy. Adelaide. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Sleep, sl the, the, the city called Sleepy Hollow produces lots of people in sleep because it's quite sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> I like Adelaide. People bag it out, but it's nice and quiet. It's nice and easy. I like that. You know, it's kind of similar yeah. to Perth. It's quite slow. I like that. Yeah. yeah, it's just just super easy to live there. It's really, yeah, really easy. Although you, you won't fit in when you go back with that American accent. It's not going to work for you. <laughs> I, can, I can lose it pretty quickly if I need to, I think. <laughs> um, so when you went back, uh, why did you go back to do a PhD? Why did you decide that that was what you wanted to go back and do? So, I've, yeah, so I've been in London for five years and um, with the same company and there was kind of uh, felt like there was sort of limited growth at that point. Um, yeah. And sort of they were saying, you know, oh, if you want to sort of move beyond this, then you need a PhD. And I was actually looking into doing one in London um, with Imperial College, oh, yeah. um, which was going to be more about sort of sleep and cardiovascular health and more of the sleep apnea stuff and I but I knew from sort of being at age that I didn't really want to go down the sleep apnea route I really liked the more sort of um 
applied research as it pertains to shift work rather than clinical applied work. Um, so yeah, so it was kind of, um, and then I, that's when I got in touch with Siobhan actually, and we had sort of the correspondence from, from London and got uh, my letter of acceptance and I was still there sort of, uh, and had to make the move. But um, yeah, I can't remember what the kind of final decision-making process was. Maybe that yeah. it was just sort of time to move home for a bit and that kind of thing. Yeah, time to come home so you could go again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> didn't last long. <laughs> no. And so um, what was the focus of your PhD studies? What, what was your main topic? What were you looking at? Um, so mainly it was about short naps and then sleep inertia. So alertness and performance following those short naps um, and looking at naps um, that would sort of take place in a sort of uh, simulated night shift environment. Yeah. Um, and I also did a whole study on um, split sleep as well. Um, that was looking at sort of rotating six hours on six hours off or eight hours on eight hours off. Um, and again, my sort of piece of the data was the, the performance and alertness in the hour after waking. So the sleep inertia sort of segment. Um, yeah. Excellent. We'll circle back to some of those topics in a moment. Um, so you finish your PhD and then did you go, you, did you go straight to the States again? Another thing that could be a memory or it could be, could be real. Could be <laughs> did you go with Ken Wright for a while in Denver or Colorado? Um, so I didn't actually um, have a position with Ken, but I think when I first moved here, mm -hmm. I did just spend a week or so there because it was just uh -huh. before a sleep meeting in Denver. So okay. Ken had invited me to sort of um, visit the lab and things like that. But um, uh, no, unfortunately, didn't have the the pleasure or privilege of, of working directly with Ken. But um, the first sort of postdoc that I did was actually with uh, Mary Cascadden in um, at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. So I had two different grants that um, sort of funded that postdoc. So I actually got the, um, the Helen Bear Park from ASA, um, and then had the Australian government grant called the Endeavour Fellowship. I'm not sure if they still run it, but um, so that's that gave me another sort of six months um, at Mary's lab. Okay. That was my okay. my first my first home in America, a little little Providence, Rhode Island, and I fell in love with it definitely. It's very different in San Francisco, I think, the New England area. It's very different. Yes. Yeah. And it's but I but I loved having four seasons. I loved having snow and then actually yeah. experiencing a spring. I just yeah, yeah. even in even in London it's sort of, you know, you have a little bit of seasons, but it's pretty just, you know, it just drizzles all year and then May yeah. is nice and then <laughs> but in in yeah, in the East Coast you get hardcore winter you get a beautiful spring hot summer and then obviously the autumn is also spectacular so it was oh, yeah. definitely fun and now in san francisco it is 20 degrees every day year round and that's it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you're right about up that area in new england it's quite nice i remember one time i drove from with a friend from montreal down to boston down through vermont fantastic absolutely beautiful you know, the colors, the, yeah. And I've been there at different yeah. times of the year between Montreal and Boston. And yeah, to see like, you know, middle of the winter, middle of the summer. 
yeah, yeah. Really, really really different you know in terms of the contrast you know you go in the middle of winter to somewhere like montreal or boston and you know it's like minus 20 25 in the wind chill and then you, then, you, yeah. then, you go, then you go oh i won't get caught out again i'll bring more clothes and you go back in july and you're like it's like 35 degrees and the humidity is crazy and you're just like dying walking yeah. completely bonkers yeah yeah i had no idea that it would be so humid yeah really like I, humid. I just yeah. didn't picture places that would get snow would also feel i always think like oh humidity you know yeah. it's tropical it's equatorial and yeah 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 i was the same i remember like you know, I, I experienced sort of humidity in Queensland of Australia or Thailand or Singapore. Mm -hmm. But I never, I said to my wife, there's nothing like the humidity in Montreal, like, for example, which is not too far <laughs> away from that area in, in, in summer. I said I nearly died, like in the middle of July, August. That was just oppressive. Yeah. And the same in yeah. New York as well. New York, New York humidity is oppressive as well. So you don't get that in yeah, San Francisco. I think it's, yeah, I think it's part of that, that sort of the infrastructure there that's built mainly to keep warm in the cold and so when it is hot and humid there's not like no one has ac no one's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> prepared for it um yeah. but yeah no san francisco is in this sort of little um well it has lots of microclimates within it even um but it is a pretty steady sort of a little too cool for my liking but um otherwise pretty nice temperature year round and then you go drive an hour inland and it's 20 degrees hotter so if you if i need to warm up i just drive east <laughs> now when you said san francisco is a little bit too cool for your liking we're talking about temperature yes okay. yeah. <laughs> so it's about the right level of cool uh, for otherwise <laughs> so so cassie where are you now what's the focus of your position at the moment so I'm currently um, working for San Jose State University, um, which uh, obviously working from home for the past two years, but otherwise I'm um, based as a contractor from them down in uh, Mountain View, which is in, you probably heard of Silicon Valley, California. So yeah. I work right over the fence from Google. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, my research focus is still largely around sleep inertia um, in terms of the projects that I lead. Um, but I'm also sort of heavily involved in just aviation research generally. So looking at fatigue in either short haul or long haul operations. Um, and yeah, I think that's a sort of the, the core of it. But I also, you know, in research, you're always sort of involved in multiple projects. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that are sort of spin-offs from there. And you doing any teaching there as well or just research? I don't do any teaching actually. Um, yeah, it's sort of, I'm, I'm, yeah, somewhere between, I'm not sort of core faculty, I'm staff. So it's this sort of weird hmm. non-academic position at an academic institution sort of contracted out to, a government agency so i'm sort of <laughs> you're sort of all um, over the place, floating yeah. in between there yeah um, um, what's your long-term goal cassie we you think you'll stay in the us or will you come back to australia or will you go somewhere else what do you think it's a million dollar question um i think um so my husband's actually studying a master's at san jose state as well and so he has and a year you're left a supervisor <laughs> yeah <laughs> no conflict of interest um <laughs> 
but uh, yeah, I think we, when he finishes his study and when my visa is next up to sort of um, renew again, we were thinking that we might try to move back to Australia and, um, and live there. It's just sort of hard to, as I say, because I'm not sort of in this pure academic track, trying mm. to think of, you know, what to transition to moving yeah. home. Um, and, but as you say, there's, there's such a sort of sleep is um, sort of at the, the crossroads of so many different um, industries that, uh, yeah, I just have to think about where I want to go and where I can go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah, it's probably a good time, seeing as Australia is crying out for lots of people for work. So, yeah. Oh, really? There you yeah. Go. Oh, it's uh, bonkers, particularly here in Western Australia. Can't get anybody. So I think even if you wanted to pivot into different roles, like you know, I don't know, health and safety, government stuff, even if it wasn't research, it was more kind of applied stuff. There's lots and lots of opportunities. So people are going crazy here trying to get staff. There's lots of uh, lots of vacancies in particularly in Western Australia on mining oil and gas. It's been booming so gotcha. yeah, the talk the, an article last week said um what are we now july 26 or something an article last week said in australia that maybe we're at full employment we you know even though the unemployment rate is so low maybe those people can't be employed for various reasons and then we're at full full employment so um the new labor government which i think is sitting today for the first time is uh i think processing nearly a million visas at the moment to get into the country so there's that much of a shortage oh, wow. so maybe yeah. i should uh yeah, get my husband's visa started. <laughs> Is he Australian or American? He he's American. Oh, yeah. I don't think I don't think we can have any more foreigners in here. I think I was. The <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> His Australian accent's not too bad, though. He can. Them, he them could, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> get him a get him a VB uh, singlet and a pair of stubby shorts, and yeah, get him walking. <laughs> As yeah, I say, have to let me in, to let anybody in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, enough of my stupid jokes. Let's get into uh, some of this stuff, Cassie, that you've been researching. So one of your your topic of main interest, which a lot of your papers around, <clears throat> is what's called sleep inertia. How would you describe sleep inertia for somebody who has no idea what sleep inertia is? Basically, if you wake up and you just want to go straight back to sleep, that's sleep inertia. Uh, you wake up and you feel more tired than when you went to bed in the first place. That's sleep inertia. Um, when you feel sort of disoriented, groggy, um, cranky, that's uh, sleep inertia. So it's sort of how you feel and how you perform when you first wake up. So when you say first wake up, what are we talking about the first five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, hour, two hours, three hours? What might it be? So typically the sort of, um, it, it sort of is at its most severe as soon as you wake up and then it sort of dissipates across time. So, and how long it takes to dissipate sort of can depend on, a, on a various factors, but I would usually say that in roughly 15 to 30 minutes, you should have sort of dissipated most of your sleep inertia related impairments, hmm. um, but that it can take up to an hour-ish for you to be sort of fully alert and at your sort of maximum wakefulness capacity. And then, the, yeah, sort of, but within those first 15 to 20 minutes, that's where the sort of uh, most severe um, symptoms can occur. 
And how would you know the difference between sleep inertia and with what I would call just basic exhaustion? Yeah, so it's, that's a good question. Um, I mean, certainly if, you're, if you've had a lot of prior sleep loss and, um, you know, you haven't had enough sleep to recover from that when you first wake up, um, it's the sort of common, it's, it's always sort of a combination, right? Yeah. So when you first wake up, it's sleep inertia on top of not having had enough sleep. And then once the sleep inertia wears off, you're still below your best because you still haven't had all the sleep that you need. Mm. Um, so yeah, definitely is, you know, the third process determining how sleepy you feel in combination with circadian and homeostatic drive for sleep. And so the, the thing that's been raised over the last probably couple of years and no surprise, you know, during sort of crazy world that we've been living in is people have been complaining about exhaustion, you know, staying at home, trying to work, trying to homeschool, trying to do this, trying to do four or five different things. And so how do you parse out, I suppose, sleep inertia from exhaustion? Would it be, would it be fair to say, like you said, you might have sleep inertia for up to an hour a day, but then if you're still feeling like crap for the rest of the day, this might be long-term exhaustion from, you know, sort of mental fatigue, physical fatigue and so on. Would that be, would that be fair enough to say that? Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Um, it might be that your sleep inertia symptoms might also sort of extend a little longer. Um, but also, um, you know, there's, and, I, and I'm more focused sort of on, again, that sort of um, applied performance aspect, but there is literature that looks at sleep inertia from a clinical perspective, and there's a lot of associations between, say, depression and sleep inertia. So people that feel like they just never fully wake up mm. when they wake up in the morning. Um, so that can, and so, you know, that might um, manifest as feeling exhausted all day, but it's that they never feel like they ever truly wake up. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot of, there's a sort of crossover with depression symptoms and that sort of experience. Um, and so, yeah, so it's sort of hard to sort of pull apart the yeah. individual components, but yeah. Yeah, like everything, I think in science, it depends. It could be multi multifactorial each one. So mm -hmm. how do you measure sleep inertia in humans, Cassie? So typically, um, it's important to look at both sort of the subjective and objective uh, outcomes. So how people feel um, and also how well they perform on sort of uh, cognitive tasks or Usually we use, you know, the, the classic PBT, the reaction time task, um, but also some sort of um, kind of more complex tasks such as uh, sort of mental arithmetic um, or matching symbols and codes, that kind of thing. Um, and you want to sort of, because it can dissipate really quickly um, and it can last for a long time, um, you really want to have sort of as many test points as you can across mm. sort of from immediately waking up so that you can really capture what happens as soon as you wake. Um, and then typically every 10 to 15 minutes across at least an hour so that you can really get a good sort of picture of, um, you know, when you're returning to your pre-sleep or whatever sort of baseline you've determined. So how would you know then the difference between someone's just base level um, 
and the effects of sleep inertia if the kid if, the, if they had a high level of we'll say i don't know inherent or previous sleep inertia when you're doing these tests how would you control for that yeah, so God, you said that it wouldn't be like ASA questions. This is <laughs> ASA questions. I'm, I'm actually just interested. Hold on a minute. I'm going so, to pause this recording. Listen, Cassie, yeah. just questions. Relax. You don't have to answer them. You're not under any pressure. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a good question, though. So um, depending on what baseline you're using as to how you're sort of defining sleep inertia. So you typically we'll take a pre-sleep measure as baseline but okay. that pre-sleep measure could be having been awake for 24 hours so it's not oh, your yeah. best certainly yeah. but then if you see that you're worse when you wake up you can see that that's the sleep inertia right because you should be yeah. if you're really sleep deprived and you have sleep you should be better um and so um yeah so it's and, and then sort of operationally it's sort of like oh well, should we nap in this circumstance or how long should we nap for in order to get the benefits of the nap but avoid as much sleep inertia as we can um that kind of thing so um but yeah you're right the your 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 baseline might not be your best either um so it's important to sort of recognize yeah. that and the reason I asked that is because, and this is a legitimate comment you will get in in consulting and operations, and you may have had it as well from your experience. Some people might turn around and go, well, you know, Johnny over there or Jane, they're just an idiot and they never react well at any time because they're really dumb. <laughs> like people will actually say that to you. Oh, you can't mm -hmm. like assess that person for alertness because he's just an idiot or she's just an idiot. They're always like that regardless of what sleep to get. So that's why I'm trying to wonder about how would you know about the difference because sometimes with some yeah. people as you know is they're just really sleep deprived the whole time and then when they get lots of good sleep or you control those things they actually like a new person and i've seen that with people that got treated right. like osa or had a new schedule or mm -hmm. came off nights on today's it's like they went up by 50 iq points it's like what <laughs> you know yeah. just a completely different person because of it that's, that's why i'm asking the question yeah definitely i mean there's um I agree that, you know, some of it's a misperception that someone is just like that, but it turns out that they're just like that because they've had chronic mm. sleep loss for 40 years from yeah. being a shift worker. Yeah, yeah. Um, or they've had OSA and not known it. And when they get CPAP, it's, they're a whole new person. Um, but there's also, you know, um, individual differences. So uh, that's why we always want to have a, uh, baseline that's within subject. So you're always comparing a participant to their own performance yeah. um, at whatever pre-selected baseline <clears throat> you have. Um, and then, yeah, and, and ideally, you know, if you can have within subjects across different conditions that you put them under, just with any science, you know, it's always going to be a stronger comparison to be within subject and sort of account for those individual differences. And there is actually some uh, research coming out now on individual differences in sleep inertia, um, just as there is sort of individual differences in the vulnerability to sleep loss. So some people, you know, can stay awake mm. 24 hours yep. and maintain their performance and other people just crash and burn. And that I'm probably <laughs> more of the latter, but, um, yeah, some, uh, I think it's Lundholm at Al, um, out of Hans van Dongen's lab, they just showed that um, there's yeah individual 
variability in sleep inertia and that it's independent of whether you're vulnerable to sleep loss per se, which is pretty interesting. But they only looked at um, the Karolinska sleepiness scale, so just mm. one time point of a subjective scale, so just sort of yeah, how yeah. people feel. Um, so it'd be really interesting to sort of extend that into how people actually perform because and now I'm going on another tangent, but the, um, because how people perform and how people think they perform during sleep inertia doesn't match very well. Um, oh yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, the, one of the napping studies that I did for my PhD, um, we asked people after a 10 or 30 minute nap in the middle of the night, sort of a simulated night shift. Um, how well do you think you performed after the nap? And everyone, th after the nap, they're like, oh yeah, I performed better after the nap. But um, on, after the 30 minute nap, their performance was actually far worse. So they weren't aware of that impairment in that time period. Um, so again, it's why it's really important that we're sort of, whenever we're measuring sleep inertia, we're looking at how do you feel, and how do you actually perform? Um, mm. And then we can use that to, that evidence together to be able to sort of educate people about um you know even if you think you feel fine when you first wake up you might still be impaired so it's still best to have you know some sort of countermeasure or wait a minute before you you know jump in that huge truck on the edge of the mm. cliff like <laughs> so just just to clarify there the people in that study with the nap it was when they woke up so in that period of potential sleep inertia that's when their mm -hmm. testing score was actually lower but they felt like they were better yes yeah. Okay. yeah so it's in that period there for that sleep inertia interesting and so mm -hmm. with with sleep inertia then is there a time of day effect so if i wake up at three o'clock in the morning versus 3 p.m in the day versus 9 a.m versus 11 p.m um independent mm -hmm. of the amount of sleep let's say for i got eight hours sleep but before all those conditions is the sleep inertia different between those time of between the different a different time of day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's um, typically worse if you're waking up during the period of time that you would normally be asleep. So if you usually sleep from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. and you have and you're waking up at some point during that time and then you're likely to have worse sleep inertia than if you took a nap during the day, say, and woke up. Um, and to your point of sort of, you know, um, keeping the amount of sleep you have constant um, and being able to measure sleep inertia independent of the change in your performance just from the circadian rhythm itself. Um, Frank Shearer and his group um, did what's called a forced asynchrony study where you're able to sort of tease apart all of those things. And that was sort of the, the seminal study that showed that sleep inertia did have this time of day effect where if you woke up during your habitual night, you're going to have worse sleep inertia than if you wake up during the day. So in practical terms then, Cassie, um, let's say you're a shift worker and you do two days, two nights and four off. Classic kind of roster that's used in Australia for emergency shift, emergency uh, workers or shift workers, nurses, even mining, processing, industrial facilities and so on. <laughs> if my chronotype is an intermediate and I generally go to bed at 11 p.m., like you said, and get up at 7 but my day shift starts at six. And let's say I'm the type of person that wants to get up early and do my exercise before I go to work. So that means I have to get up at 4 a.m. 
I want to go to the gym for an hour, have a shower, quick breakfast and get to work at six. I'm getting up at 4 a.m. But you're the type of person that goes, no, I'm not getting up that early. It's too early. I'm going to get up at 5.15, quick shower, breakfast and go to work. Would it be fair to say that in my sleep uh, inertia at 4 a.m. would be considerably different than your sleep inertia at 5.15 a.m. because I'm more back into that window of circadian law when I should be asleep. Therefore, I'm more at risk driving to the gym, cycling a bike on the road, whatever it might be. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that waking up closer to your window of circadian low or circadian nadir is uh, going to be associated with higher sleep inertia. Also, if you're still going to bed at 11 um, and if you're waking up at four, you're getting an hour less sleep. And we yeah. know that if you have le- if you have any sleep loss, then that can increase sleep inertia as well. Um, and... Um, and again, yeah, if, you, if you're looking at sort of jumping straight in the car and driving, then that's where it's a problem. But if you're able to have a shower and have breakfast and spend 20 to 30 minutes getting ready before you get in the car, then that's probably a better way to stagger your activities. But I don't know if anyone showers and eats before working out. But, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but um, actually there's – and. Uh, uh, Katya Kovac and colleagues at CQU in Adelaide were looking at whether exercise was actually a countermeasure to sleep inertia. So could you, um, you know, wake up and do a bunch of exercise and sort of help get over your sleep inertia? Um, but in in their study, at least, they found that it does make you feel more alert, but it didn't improve on uh, those sort of cognitive performance tests. But as you know from sort of exercise studies, there's so many different ways you mm. can exercise in terms of intensity and type and duration. Yeah. Um, so I think there's still a lot of um, opportunity to research in that area because there's sort of physiological reasons for why sleep and um, exercise should improve sleep inertia are pretty compelling so um so yeah so potentially if you have an at-home gym maybe that's the best (laughs) solution so you're not but you know you don't want to you know injure yourself on the equipment either because i think there's also gosh it's been a while since i read it but um uh research on sort of i think it was grip strength after waking i think it was in an elderly population for that one um for sort of because elderly people are at risk of falls when they get yeah. up at the night in the night to use the bathroom and things like that. Um, so sort of that motor control immediately after waking takes a little bit to to get back. And and I don't know if you next time you wake up, try to like clench your fist and make like make a fist. And it's really hard. Like when you first wake up, it's you just feel really weak. Mm. Um, but yeah, I can barely grab the toothbrush. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. So here's another one in the sleep inertia because this makes me think about different um, different things. So a couple of things that come into my mind personally is like, you know, military. You get woken up at like 2, 3 a.m. in the morning in a, in a military environment. So, you know, an operational military person got no, they can't be like, oh, hold on, enemy, stop firing. I need to have coffee, breakfast, do a few burpees. <laughs> yeah. The other thing as well is... Um, some events might start very early in the morning. So some ultra marathons or Ironman start at four or five, six a.m. in the morning. 
So you got these type of events. We spoke a little bit about shift work as well. So all of these things could potentially all lead to sleep inertia, getting up at these periods, these windows of circadian low. But does each one of those different events, we'll say commuting to work, starting a shift, doing a run, or in a military environment where you're going to have different responses, is there different adaptations to that sleep inertia or ability to overcome them based upon that response? Because I would think if someone's shooting at you, they'd wake up very quick. But if you're driving, you know, a half an hour listening to an audio book, it's going to be quite different. Yes. So a lot, I think, to unpack there, I'm trying to remember. Um, so certainly all those instances, um, you're right. It's, you know, because most people are like, oh, well, you know, when I first wake up in the morning, that's when I'm, you know, scrolling through Facebook or insert yeah. appropriate social media platform here. I've shown my age saying Facebook, um, but you know, you might accidentally <laughs> don't, like don't, something. Don't worry, yeah. don't worry, Cassie. I, rem I remember encyclopedias, so don't, you're you're okay. So don't, you're all right. You're young. The really you're young in paper. Yeah, yeah. Well, we had the whole set. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's, you, you know, you might accidentally like something that you didn't want to or whatever, but there's not sort of this safety critical situation mm -hmm. going on as you're, you know, coming um, to full alertness. Um, but yeah, in those military operations, um, if you're jumping in a car, emergency services, so sort of, mm -hmm. um, you know, on-call emergency helicopters, they work generally sort of 24 or 48 hour shift. They're just on yeah. call the whole time. They have five minutes from the call to be blades on with the helicopter. And so it's, and again, you can't be like, oh, well, I need to wait 20 minutes before I rescue that person because that's a matter of life and death. Um, and also in um, hospital situations. So again, particularly residents in America working 24 oh, hour plus yeah. shifts and uh, napping because they need to because they've been awake for so long. But um, if they, if their pager then goes on, it goes off, you know, at the uh, in the middle of that nap um and then they have to make these you know really critical decisions um yeah that's where this sort of brief but severe period of uh sleep inertia can become problem um in terms of how um you can overcome each of them or how sort of important it is in each one you mentioned sort of the um, military situation where you might expect that sort of adrenaline would kick in and sort of overcome any sort of sleep inertia impairment. Um, and I think that there's, there's some, um, benefit definitely of the adrenaline in terms of, you know, what we know adrenaline is for, for the fight or flight response, but in terms of your kind of critical thinking, that kind of prefrontal cortex, you know, higher order thinking situation, adrenaline doesn't necessarily um, help that part come online again. So I always give the example of um, there was a, um, a flight in North America where the uh, first officer um, woke up from a nap in the cockpit and it was a night flight and um, they saw, they heard ATC or air traffic control talking about lights in the near vicinity and they looked out the window and there was this bright light straight ahead of them and so without consulting the captain or anything just you know 
put the disengaged autopilot, put the plane into a nosedive to, on, to sort of avoid this mm. crash with this oncoming plane with the light in the sky. Um, but it turned out that the light in the sky was Venus. So there's probably no doubt that there was adrenaline coursing through the veins of that first officer as they thought they were going to have a head-on collision and made all these really quick judgments, but they weren't necessarily like good. It doesn't adrenaline doesn't necessarily lead to good judgment or good decision yeah, making yeah. No, in sure, the moment. Yeah. Um, so while it can help sort of recover probably your reaction time, right? And um, probably that, you know, grip strength and those kind of things. Um, if you're having to make sort of complicated decisions, um, then uh, then that sleep inertia might still be affecting um, that part of it. Hmm. <laughs> Planet, dead ahead, <laughs> five years to impact, quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man, that, the, the, the planet must have been very bright for him to do that straight away. But yeah, that's... that's yeah, great. I, mean, I think that's, Venus that's, is the brightest thing in the sky. So it's, yeah. Oh, Cassie, I thought you were going to say I was the brightest star. But anyway. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is crazy. I, I didn't. I never heard that story. That's a great story. So what do you yeah. think, and Cassie? The, the, well, the message also is that while the captain was able to recover the flight, the only people that got injured were those not wearing their seatbelts. So you should always wear your seatbelt, even if the seatbelt sign's turned off. There you go. Safety never takes a break, even <laughs> when you're on a holiday. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why, yeah, be careful in that toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, ooh, I think I might have caught the phantom, the phantom outside my house on the verge. Oh. There's a phantom dog. Well, not a phantom dog, a phantom dog oh. owner that lets its dog shit on my verge most days. <laughs> and, um, I'm going to get a camera installed to catch this person because every time I go away for work for a few days and come back, my verge is covered in shit. So anyway. So that's, that's a crazy. site that, yeah well we're going to catch yeah. that person my next door neighbor is a, is a judge so okay. we're going to catch the person anyway um <laughs> like the slight diversion from being a scientist i'm on the hunt i'm on the hunt, I'm on, I'm on the hunt for a for a, a phantom dog shitter um so cassie speaking about facebook and, and social media and so on what do you think about all these celebrities you know insert name again or former you know military people are like about getting up before I am and seizing the day and getting your work done and going to the gym and doing this and doing that. You know, my answer to those people is oh, that follow those people that, you know, cause some people are like, oh, I've been doing this thing where I'm getting up before o'clock and I'm just so tired. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Believe, believe less of yeah. what, believe less of what you see and more of what you hear, you know, but um, what do you think about people trying to do this? It seems to become more and more popular, I think recently. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the algorithms of uh, Facebook are clearly uh, showing this in your feed, but not mine. So I'm not even on Facebook, but it's it's um, oh, okay. it's actually on like podcasts. It's on. Gotcha. It's in it's in news stories. It's in this kind of it seems to be really targeted, I think, at males 30 to 50 about, you know, mm. kind of extreme ownership by Jocko and the Jordan oh. Peterson effect, this kind of, you know, reinvigorating men to be men and but it's just the message is all about getting up like mark Wahlberg does it as well the rock these kind of celebrities about okay. getting up at three and four a.m in the morning to to work out and do this and do that you know and you can get two or three hours extra a day like what, yeah you, i mean what, what I, do you think of all this? I mean 
yeah, it's, it sounds like sort of one of those trends or fads that are sort of, you know, this is the, the latest exercise regime or whatever. But I mean, as you well know, in terms of chronotypes that not everyone can get up at 4am. Some people love it and it would suit them really well. And if that's, you know, if they um, at their feeling best rhythm from the morning, this evening's questionnaire at those early times of day, um, then, and that's a lifestyle that works for them. But yeah, I would caution people sort of that are usually waking up at 9am suddenly having this like, oh, well, if I woke up at four, like my life would yeah. be so much better because it would probably be a lot worse. Um, and it's also, I think, just generally, you know, exercise and nutrition get a lot of um, media time, get a lot of um, public sort of and, and like government messaging, health messaging, whereas sleep is, you know, we consider it the third pillar of health together with exercise and nutrition. But I think it's, and, and it's getting more recognition, but sort of um, lagging behind those other two in sort of that kind of really strong messaging that, you know, if you, and we're learning more about the fact that like, if you don't get enough sleep, mm. then it's actually harder to lose weight. You can do, you can eat exactly the same thing but if you get less sleep, you'll lose less weight. And if you, or if you exercise exactly the same way, but get less sleep, you'll lose less weight. So, um, and I, I'm speaking outside my sort of area of expertise, but I'm, but in terms of, you know, there's uh, about sleep being important for, you know, muscle repair and tissue repair and human yeah growth hormone release and and so if you're trying to you might not be trying to lose weight might be trying to build muscle if it's this really macho approach that you're talking about but again without the right sleep you're not going to necessarily be able to build muscle as effectively as if you balanced everything and had enough sleep had time for the gym um and we're eating well but it's only 24 hours in a day and it's and i feel like every social media thing is just like just do this for five minutes a day, yeah, yeah. but there's a thousand up. of them. And how yeah. do I do five minutes? If I do five minutes of each thing, I can't do all of that. Something's got to give and usually it's sleep, right? Yeah. And look, I totally agree with you. And I think, um, I think you're right. There's different reasons why people are exercising and all. And we, there is studies, like you said, about particularly for men as they get older with lower testosterone that we're seeing a lot of, but basically if men can focus more on sleep and by extending that sleep and getting more deep sleep, you know, the only way you can do that is by giving yourself a better sleep opportunity, be more consistent. We see that there's increase in testosterone, but I think you're, I think you're, uh, you're dead right there in terms of, you know, the, the social media fads and, 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 and um, the amount of time in a day. Cause I often say to people, you know, people go, oh, I've got a lot of trouble sleeping or I've re I'm really focused on sleep, you know, but I'm, you know, I'm really have a lot of trouble sleeping and, and so on. And I just go, okay, so describe your day. I'll say like from the time you get up in the morning, just describe your general day. And then what about weekends and whatever? And invariably, 80% of the time, what happens is actually, and I'd say to them, I know your problem. I can diagnose your problem for you straight away. And they're like, oh, what's wrong with me? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. You basically have a mathematic problem. And they're like, what? You can't add and subtract. And they're like, what? There's 24 hours in a day. If you're going to bed at 10 o'clock at night and getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, you're only allowing six hours for sleep. Therefore, you cannot get eight hours of sleep in a six hours sleep opportunity window. I said, I don't know what happens where you went to school, but when I went to school, eight doesn't go into six. And they're like, what? 
I'm like, you're just not allowing enough time for sleep. You, and it's as simple as that for about yeah. 80 percent of people. Yeah, but I need to get up in the morning, do my exercise and do this and do that. I'm like, well, if you're saying sleep is important, you need to be at least giving yourself at least an eight hour opportunity. So that means going right. to bed at 10 and getting up at six. Oh, I can't do that. Like, well, then you're not going to get it. Like, it's just, it, it, sometimes <laughs> it's just that simple. It's like someone that's grossly overweight and going, oh, don't know what's wrong with me. Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with you. You're five foot 10 and you're 150 kilos and you're eating 10,000 calories a day. So we need to reduce that, you know, and maybe it's progressively we need to reduce it. Or like your example, from nine o'clock to 4 a.m., we need to move back by a half an hour each day or 15 minutes. And people go, oh, no, I couldn't do that. Well, like, you're still going to get the same you're still going to have the same out- outcome. You know, nothing's going to change. So yeah. until you make that time, you're, you're still going to keep having that same issue of reoccurring. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, but I do appreciate that it is hard to find those extra two hours, right? Um, and, you know, um, there's uh, a lot of different reasons why people don't have enough time to sleep and depending you know, there's a sort of strong socioeconomic uh, influences, with, you know, people having to work two jobs or, um, you know, caregivers for other people, that kind of thing. It's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's easy for us to say, oh, well, you just need to allow more time for sleep, but sort of having, you know, being able to um, rearrange a lifestyle to to Mm. get that sleep can be really difficult i mean if you're but if you're you know um you know an athlete or something like that and that is your key focus and you know two hours extra sleep can improve your performance then you're more likely to be able to sort of um kind of uh, make time for that sleep because you can see yes. I think it's also the thing of, you know, being able to, being able to show people the value of what they're going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, it's hard to, it's hard to know how much better you would feel with more sleep until you actually get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah um, I totally agree. Yeah. So Cassie, yeah. coming back to sleep inertia, what's the, what's the negative mm-hmm. impact of sleep inertia in terms of on our, on our, impact from a, let's say, as you say, like an operation perspective or alertness perspective, if we have high sleep inertia, what's the negative outcome? What's the worst things I suppose that can happen to us from it? Uh, on a personal level or a sort of, uh, I mean, there's, uh, there have been multiple fatalities due to sleep inertia, um, you know, sort of sleep inertia related errors in safety yeah. critical environments. Um, so that's probably the worst case scenario. Um, but in terms of, in terms of sort of, I don't, I don't know if there's been any, I don't think there's been any studies of sort of, um, you know, the health impacts of sleep inertia. Like if you mm-hmm. were someone who, um, routinely sort of woke up when you wanted to still be sleeping um sort of what the impacts of that are and i would i would imagine that it's again this combination right where it's if you're if you're getting really bad sleep inertia because you're waking up at the wrong time of day or because you haven't had enough sleep then you're going to have all the negative health outcomes of you know circadian misalignment and sleep loss 
Um, and sleep inertia is really just a manifestation of the interaction of those things rather than sort of necessarily something that's adding to that physiological stress. But that being said, we again, there's very little research in that area and there may be something about sort of um, uh, so the cortisol awakening response, for example, which is a sort of natural spike in cortisol when you first wake up. But that occurs if you're waking up sort of at a habitual time. Yeah. Um, but if you're waking up at a different time, you don't necessarily get that spike. And that's one of the theories as to why you might have worse sleep inertia because you're not having this boost in cortisol to help you um, sort of transition from sleep to wake as, as quickly as possible. So potentially missing that cortisol awakening response routinely might have some long-term effects, but uh, we, I don't think we know it at this stage. And then what about personal factors? Is there anything inside our control that we can be aware of uh, or even know about, you know, is there differences between males and females, is there difference between body weight, difference between age, difference between, I don't know, height, ethnic background, the size of your nose, the size of, like, what, is there any sort of factors that we can be aware of that may, you know, make us worse at dealing with sleep inertia than others? Yeah, I mean, the sleep inertia literature is so far behind anything sort of to do with sleep loss or circadian research. So there's very little that we know about it. Um, but in terms of those individual differences, um, there appears to be some sort of individual differences from that study I was mentioning earlier, at least in terms of how you sort of feel when you wake up. Um, there is, there was a study of um, people who habitually nap and those who never nap. Um, and they found that um, those who regularly nap or habitually nap, they had lighter sleep in their nap than those people who hated napping, didn't mm. nap, they had deeper sleep. And so they didn't measure sleep inertia in that, but I like to sort of extrapolate from that, that potentially the people who self-select as never napping probably have worse sleep inertia because they have deeper sleep when they do nap. And that's, I would put myself in that category. I, naps are great. They're very important for various things, but I hate napping. I wake up way worse than when mm. I, you know, went to sleep uh, before I went to sleep. But some people just love a Sunday afternoon nap and might um, on average just have a lighter sleep and wake up feeling more refreshed without the grogginess. Um, but what drives those individual differences? We're not sure. Um, and then we are actually just starting to look at sex differences as well. Um, and it seems that there is this, um, in, you know, our relatively small sample size, but it's, it's the first that I haven't seen it reported anywhere else that, um, that sleep inertia, that, uh, females tend to rate their, uh, sleepiness as higher when they wake up but um, higher than males, but that their um, cognitive performance is uh, not different to males. Hmm. So um, that's a sort of some a pilot data that we're looking at at the moment. That, um, but otherwise, yeah, we don't, nothing on the size of noses yet. Um, okay. <laughs> watch this space. <laughs> uh, and, and, yeah. and so, so with, with um, you said there about light and deep sleep, is there any difference in the sleep inertia if you wake up in different sleep stages? So if both you and I, all things being equal, go to bed at 11 a.m., uh, sorry, 11 p.m., 
and then we wake up at 5 a.m but i'm in stage one sleep and you're in REM sleep is there a different sleep inertia based upon those stages of sleep yeah so i guess i kind of got ahead of myself in talking about that but um so yes um and the main sort of most consistent finding is that if you wake out of slow wave sleep so the deeper stages of sleep you're more likely to have worse sleep inertia than if you wake out of lighter stages of sleep like stage one stage two the relationship between stage two and REM um, is pretty inconsistent in the literature so it's not super clear whether um, waking out of one or the other in that respect is better or worse um, I, I would just hypothesize that potentially, you know, if you wake out of REM and you've been in a really vivid dream, then that might lead to sort of disorientation when you first wake up. So you might sort of be able to do a PVT as yeah, yeah. still quickly, but if you had to like, again, use those sort of higher order processes, then um, that might be more impaired from REM. But that's, yeah, there's not sort of a clear distinction at the moment. Excellent. And so Cassie, you did do a study um, on the efficacy of uh, polychromatic shortwave length in rich light. <laughs> Big sentence there. Yeah. So the, what, the, what, what, what exactly you is may just because... change it to that. <laughs> so you, um, you, you, you shun a torch in someone's eye. <laughs> so we, we know like... Light, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we know from like jet lag studies and shift work that light is our you know dominant synchronizer for you know ad adaptation to a to a new schedule or a new time zone so how does how does light help here in terms of sleep inertia yeah so light has those phase shifting effects that you mentioned so helping you adapt to a new schedule um but there's also acute alerting effects of light so there had been studies looking at the use of light um, sort of during a sleep deprivation period or during circadian misalignment, so at night, and found that um, exposure to this um, so polychromatic short wavelength in rich light just means that the light appears white, but the lower end of the spectrum, the shorter end of the spectrum, so the blue enriched kind of uh, end of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, uh, so because different types of light have different effects. So it's really important when we're reporting them to say exactly what type of light we used. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so this kind of light can improve your alertness and performance um, immediately. So it's not something that where it's shifting a phase and you're gradually getting better over time. It's just in that moment, you can improve um, those outcomes. And so there had been a couple of studies that had looked at um, using light during sleep inertia and they found that it improved again that sort of subjective alertness but wasn't doing anything to help um, cognitive performance but those studies were conducted during the day um, and we also have sort of this phase sort of different responses to light depending on where we are in our circadian rhythm so light the acute alerting, alerting effects of light are sort of stronger if you deliver them at night so so we sort of simulated again sort of an on-call scenario where you're sleeping yeah. during the night and you get a random call um and so we wake them up and they have to do that sort of series of repeated test bouts and they did it either um with a dim light or this specialized light 
Um, and we found that, yeah, it improved um, uh, the sub subjective alertness and some mood elements as well. Um, and also reduce the number of lapses in attention that people are having on the PVT. So we're pretty excited about that. And so from an operational practical perspective, is there a, is there a kind of a mobile light or something that people could use if they were napping in a shift work environment to, to mimic this? Yeah, so we actually, um, we took advantage of the fact that we couldn't access our lab for the past two years to translate the study to the field. And so we did an at-home study um, where we shipped all the um, equipment to people and then sort of uh, remoted in and walked them through how to set everything yeah. up. And we used the uh, luminette glasses. So they're glasses that are worn and have the, um, the bright blue and rich light uh, with, built into the glasses. So they are, you know, field deployable, personal wear. Um, so we're just uh, analyzing the data from that now. So we don't quite have the results as to the outcome of that translation from the lab to the field, but that's certainly, you know, something that we're always um, sort of making sure that we keep our yeah. focus on, you know, doesn't matter, it, you know, you have to demonstrate that it works in the lab, but um, that translating in the field is super important. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Cassie, for your time today. That was a very interesting conversation on uh, the basics, I think, of sleep inertia. And I think we'll have some other chats in the future based upon some of your studies, because I think there's lots of practical application for this work into shift work environments, particularly those people working night shift who have to either nap and, and then get back to work or for those people who are doing rotating shift work. So I'm very, very interested in the uh, the practical applications, some of this work going forward. So I'd love to have you back on again to talk about some of your findings if you're uh, willing and able to come back on hopefully you'll be back in australia soon to help us with our skill shortage down here <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> I'm always always happy to talk about sleep inertia and uh yeah if um hopefully i'll be back there soon and so cassie if people want to follow you on social media or anything else or want to get in contact with you how can people follow you get in contact how can they follow your work I don't really have um, sort of a science social media presence, but um, probably I think ResearchGate or yeah. LinkedIn um, sort of where most of the sort of updates from that side of things happen. But if you do want to follow a blind opossum, Instagram at optimistic opossums. Plural. Optimist, optimistic opossums. Okay, we might have to get you to send yeah. that through to make to make sure we don't spell it wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So LinkedIn okay. and research get for your scientific work, and you do post on LinkedIn there. I've seen some of your papers there, so that's great. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Thanks very much, Cassie. Um, have a nice evening in San Francisco. Hopefully, doesn't get below twenty, and uh, we'll talk again. All right. Thanks, Ian, and uh, stay warm.